Thanks for tuning in. 99 for One is a podcast of real-life stories meant to inspire ordinary people to do extraordinary things that change our world. This podcast is owned and operated by Will Cravens, author of the book 99 for One and founder of the nonprofit Endurance Leadership. Now for today's podcast, here's Will Cravens. All right, welcome back to 99 for One. Sharon Christner, who is a recent graduate of the University of Pennsylvania, has become interested in homeless work. And in fact, her work took her all the way over to Rome, Italy, where there's uh, the uh, Palazzo Migliore in uh, St. Peter's Square. And the Pope had been given the opportunity to open up a portion of the Vatican that had been donated by this uh, Migliore family. And he could open it up as a hotel, but instead they, they transformed it into a a shelter for the homeless. They house approximately uh, 50 or so men and women with 16 different bedrooms. And I saw Sharon as a university uh, grad working, uh, volunteering a month of her time to serve in the shelter. So welcome, Sharon. Hi, thanks for having me. It's our privilege. If you could tell us a little bit, what brought you from Pennsylvania all the way to Rome, Italy? So I think I can speak for academics and graduate students everywhere and saying that a grant brought me from here to there. I'm in the middle of a master's program in nonfiction writing and for my thesis I'm interested in looking at um, homelessness in places of religious pilgrimage, um, particularly in this case of Christianity. You know, we're in a place that considers itself to be the center of Christianity and I'm wondering to what degree does that live out in practice? What a great question to ask. And to what extent do people actually live out their faith as opposed to just talking about it on a, on a Sunday and relegating it to an hour a week? So what, what did you discover? Did you have to speak Italian to work in the uh, house? So I don't speak Italian. And obviously there were some frustrating times of, you know, impasse when we couldn't understand each other. But I know Spanish, which is, you know, a similar enough language where I can understand right. what people are saying. But I not able to produce very much. So I had to listen, which was a good thing. There was some language barrier. It wasn't too bad, though. And the folks who were staying in the shelter accepted me pretty quickly because they recognized that, like them, I didn't quite fit into the city at all. It, it also depended on the person. Some people were really happy to have an English speaker there because, for example, um, one woman I met was from Nigeria, and so her English was perfect. And uh, we got along really well because we could communicate. But what would be a, like an average day? So you're there for a month. What was an average day in your duties and expectations as you served? Yeah, so I was actually doing a lot of things. I spent some time in Palazzo Migliore, which um, is the place you described. I was also working in a more traditional meal-only kind of soup kitchen place in another part of town. Well, that was still in Rome? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, in Savary neighborhood and some other charity things organized by the community of Santa Gidio, which is one of the biggest organizations of charity people in the city. So I was hopping around from place to place, but I did get to spend a lot of time in Palazzo Migliori, which I think is probably the most beautiful shelter anywhere. Wow. And now where did you sleep? Where did you, they give you a bed or were you staying off site? I was staying off site. At first I was staying, well, it was always in a hostel. So at first I was in a hostel in Germany, which is it's where the train station is. And so it's, it's, it's another place where a lot of people are sleeping out 
um, in the station and stuff. Yeah, there's a rough um, crowd around there. I've come in and out of. For those of you who have traveled to Rome, you'd know Roma Termini is the primary train station for all of Rome. So there's all sorts of folks outside begging, different immigrants there. Yeah, so some bed bugs chased me out of that neighborhood. Okay. Or out that hostel, anyway. The neighborhood's fine. It's just a hostel. Then I was in a hostel in Trastevere, which did not have bed bugs and was much easier. <laughs> there you go. That makes a difference, right? Yeah, it does. Would, would there be one or two stories of homeless people you interacted with that sort of made an impression on you or where you saw an impact either in the volunteers, in the people you were working with that you could share with us? Yeah, um, I made some wonderful friends of the people who are staying in the shelter. There's a woman who I became close to whose name is Anna. She's an older woman like a lot of the residents there, and she's had a long life full of you know, many, many struggles. When she lost her job, she couldn't get another one because she's not an Italian citizen, and there was some bureaucracy involved there. And in the meantime, she became homeless, and, you know, all of the kind of terrifying things that come, can come along with that for a woman who's, who's alone. Right. Um, one of the things about this particular shelter is that how well-staffed it is and how much care has been put into it is not only that it creates a great immediate environment for the people who are staying there, but also that it allows people like Anna to think about their life in terms of a positive trajectory. She can tell a story about her life, and she does, that says things used to be like this, it got really bad, but now I get to stay in a place of a princess, and I feel like a princess. Wow. Um, so it's a lot of kind of closure for the end part of a long life that has been very difficult. Now, are there stipulations on how long they can stay? When you say it's closure, is she allowed to continue there? Yeah, so that's really case by case. The organizers of the shelter are really, really involved in the community in general and in other aspects of poverty as well. So they sit down and talk with people, really assess their situation, and they try to find the people who really have no other place to go. So they're looking for the most the most dire cases, basically. And then once they determine that this is someone that they can help at Plasmiliori, then they it's an extended period of time at least. So it's, it's not the kind of place where you have to show up at 6 p.m. sharp and hope that you get a bed. It's like you know you have some stability. You know you're coming back tomorrow. Right. You know you're coming back. So um, they, they've done their groundwork. They know relationally who you are, your background, and make sure that they're going to be able to help you and provide a pathway to help you get your life back. Absolutely. And another question, I started speaking with you before we started our podcast today, but I think it would be helpful for the listeners to hear. Tell me again where you're from in Pennsylvania, what initially caught your heart about even working with the homeless? Yeah, so like you said, I'm from the countryside of Pennsylvania, and homelessness exists there, but it's mostly invisible. People who don't have their own homes, spend time in libraries, couch surfing, in a shelter, et cetera. It's not something that you see in front of your face. And there's a member of my family who is homeless, so I knew this was a problem, and I didn't know how to think about it. So it's personal as well. Um, but when I finally visited a big city and people are just on the sidewalk, it was the only thing I could see. It's the only thing you can think about. How can we be touring around this city for the day and enjoying ourselves when this, like, huge problem is in front of our face. So 
it was initially a feeling of injustice that some people have to sleep on the sidewalk and other people can, you know, be spending a hundred dollars on, on a meal at, in on the same block. Right. That's wow. Uh, the, w- the way you articulated that, that for you coming from the country and not being used to seeing it, it was a, uh, you couldn't get used to the shock value. And the other side of that spectrum is folks that live in a city that it, it's kind of scary when we, if we could get used to it. You get used to seeing them and just actually they become invisible people. You, you learn to just walk past them and it's part of the sidewalk. It's part of the just layout and, and everybody's used to it. But uh, very few actually stop and do something. So that's that's incredible that you were inspired to actually take action. So my next question would be, uh, to what extent does your own faith play a part in your willingness to work with the homeless and engage them? Sure. Um, so the thing that I think of immediately is the verses in Matthew 25 that talk about the evaluation of our faith is based on how we treat people who are in the most desperate situations. Yeah, that's a great way to put it, how our faith is even evaluated. I heard you also mention another passage when they interviewed you, when uh, MDC News interviewed you, and you mentioned this uh, woman. You want to talk about that? Yeah, sure. So a lot of times when we are thinking about how to work charity, we're thinking about efficiency and kind of bureaucratically, and um, the beauty of the place that I was working in this winter is that everything was on the table. They wanted to make a beautiful place with wonderful food, lots of warm staff. And that reminded me of when a woman came up to Jesus and poured expensive perfume on his feet. The Pharisees were like, what is she doing? She could use that expensive thing much more efficiently. Uh, yeah, I, I remember you on, on the uh, NBC News thing, just, uh, interview just saying it was a moment of beauty for her. Yeah, so she pours out this expensive perfume on Jesus' feet, and on paper, it doesn't make sense, right? Why why would you do that when you can sell it and give it to the poor, even if the Pharisees really wanted to give it to the poor, right? You right. can sell this and give it to the poor. But Jesus says, no, she's doing something for me. That gives us a lot to think about in terms of caring for other people, we don't have to just do it the most efficient, logical, airtight way. We can actually be a little bit illogical with, with it. We can give, you know, more than we think we can afford to of our time and of our resources. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard it said that the love of Christ is extravagant. What that woman did was extravagant. It was the value of the oil she dropped on him that day, anointed him with, was worth a year's wages. Imagine, I live in Northern Virginia, year's wages probably for the average person is 90 thousand dollars a year imagine if we saw somebody dump out something on the poor that was worth 90 grand a lot of us might say well this is poor stewardship but jesus said no it's beautiful it showed value that actually leads us to our next question how important is dignity and hope when it comes to our work with homeless people i think it's i mean it's important for any person of course um and kind of what i was talking about with Anna, the reason, one of the reasons that the shelter is so good for her is because it allows her to um, feel proud of her life, even though it's been very difficult because she's ended up in this place that she loves. On a day-to-day basis, we can kind of transmit that. Number one, when you see someone on the street, look them in the face and say hello to them. Complain about the weather 
or a sports team, whatever, but speak to them in a positive way. When I was writing about homelessness in Philadelphia and I was staying with some people who slept outside City Hall, eventually I blended in, I looked the part, and it was just incredible to see. You have to look at your own hands once in a while to, to see that you still exist. Like, people really avoid looking at you. They avoid smiling accidentally in your direction. Just simple things like eye contact and a good conversation will go a long way. If you want to go the next step, which I think you should, then what's important next is be a consistent part of someone's life. Get to know someone, learn their name, where they usually spend their time, their favorites and their least favorites of things. That's really important. To have a relationship with them that's not just transactional or bureaucratic. The reason we don't like going to the DMV is because we're treated like a number. Um, Yeah, exactly. For various reasons, a lot of social services are set up that way. A lot of times because, you know, there's just a lack of resources. So if you can be a source of, like, personal integration for a person, then that's really important. Right. It's more important to be a friend than to give them five bucks, for sure. Well, last question. We always end up by asking the question, what about you and me? So for our listeners, how do we apply this? Uh, We don't want to just be a podcast that has information. We actually want to be a source of encouragement and a uh, catalyst to live differently and make an impact on those around us. So any ways you could imagine, uh, based on what you've learned, how we could make a difference, things people could do. You mentioned a little bit on maybe giving, but anything else uh, you would say in terms of application when we say, what about you and me? How can we make a difference? Yeah, um, that's a great question. It's really easy to be impressed when, like, the Pope does something really extravagant and generous and we can be, like, heartwarmed by the news story, right? But we also get to do generous things that don't make sense. So in terms of practical application, um, I've been thinking a lot about this quote by St. Basil. I'm not actually Catholic, so I don't know a lot about the saints, but having spent some time in the Catholic world now with the community of San Digio, I came across this quote by St. Basil, which has been, which has had me thinking about, you know, how can the regular American be helpful? And here's a quote. The bread which you hold back belongs to the hungry. The coat which you guard in your locked storage belongs to the naked. The footwear moldering in your closet belongs to those without shoes. The silver that you keep hidden in a safe place belongs to the one in need. Thus, however many are those whom you could have provided for, so many are those whom you wrong. And I read that, and I was like, oh my goodness, I have more than I need. So I think a really simple way to start is to just look around your home and say, what do I have extra of? What could I get by without? What can I pass along to the next person? And perhaps do a little purging and find an organization that actually is going to make good use with the homeless with those things that we just have doubles of or triples or even more. Yeah, absolutely. In our culture today, there's a huge emphasis on success and hustle and all these things. And maybe even on like doing good because it'll come back to you someday. But like that is a really different thing than just giving because the other person needs it, or being happy with doing with less. Something that homelessness requires is being extremely creative and working with the makeshift and get by and using what's around. And I think that 
if other people are doing that to such an extreme, right? Like, if the people I met have to be extremely innovative just to survive, there are definitely things that we can be a little bit creative and do without. Oh, for sure. That's, it's such a great point, and it's not like a rocket science thing to do. I guess it'd be more important to figure out which organizations are actually going to do something with it and uh, productive and constructive and get it to the right people in the right hands and to the homeless, to those who need it, to the oppressed. So, well, I just want to thank yeah, you today, uh, Sharon, for all your time. Thank I, you. I, I was inspired by your life decision to go and take a month out of your life. I mean, granted, you got a, a grant that helped you, but you were still willing to do it, which a lot of people wouldn't even give up a month to do that. So kudos to you. That's awesome. Thank you. Well, uh, anything else you want to say to our listeners before we close out? Well, you were asking about specific organizations, and it depends on where you are. But one organization that I would recommend in terms of if you're talking about donating stuff, house stuff, objects, like we were talking about. Sure. Um, Humble Design. It's only in certain cities, but Humble Design actually furnishes homes for people who are transitioning out of homelessness but don't have anything to put in their house. Wow. They are super... Um, super creative and super thorough so um, if they're in your city I recommend them for sure so thank you again and uh, we appreciate your time and that's it for this week on 99 for 1 next week we got a special treat for you so don't miss out on uh, another podcast with 99 for 1 you've been listening to 99 for 1 a podcast of real life stories meant to inspire ordinary people to do extraordinary things that change our world this podcast is owned and operated by will cravens author of the book 99 for 1 and founder of the nonprofit endurance leadership thanks for listening